All right, guys, it's time for the next Level Guy Show, a men's interview, interest, and improvement-focused podcast featuring interviews with the greats from all industries to help you better your life. Each week, a new episode features an interview with one of the greats, covering all aspects of their story, from life hacks to tips and protocols that have allowed them to live life on the next level. We then highlight concrete action steps that you can use to improve your life. And now, your host, Ian Dawson McKay. And today's guest is Lucas Handwerker. Lucas is a certified clinical hypnotist, TEDx speaker, spiritual counsellor, writer and speaker. He has been transforming the lives of his clients for the last 10 years. When he's not working with clients from across the globe, he's writing or presenting his unique healing presentations all over the country. Lucas's goal is to do the most good for the most number of people. Please note that this is a mix of two chats we had. Interview 1 is up to the affiliate notice and interview 2 follows that. And now let's get to the interview. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show today. You have no idea how long I've been looking forward to this. I'm a really big fan of your work. But for people who maybe don't recognize your name, could you give a quick introduction? Yeah. Hi, everybody. My name is Lucas Handwerker, and uh, I'm a spiritual counselor and uh, an unconscious counselor. I also practice as a hypnotherapist and do a lot of other things. But, um, you know, at its core, I help people make changes in their unconscious minds and I also explore the unconscious mind and consciousness in general as a concept and just want to understand more deeply what it is, how it works and how we can explore it and utilize it to live better lives. So how did you initially get into this? Because your dad's a psychologist. Did you Do you think his work with the mind and shaping the interest of his clients shaped your own interest in the sort of the mind and what it's, its capability? Yeah, absolutely. You know, my dad's been a psychologist for 50 years now. He's still in practice. And um, his his sort of slant on psychology was more a spiritual one. So he brought in uh, Eastern and Western spiritual ideas into his counseling practice. And growing up, uh, I was just always around uh, ideas of, of, you know, psychology when I was a kid if I was in an argument, they would tell me that I was projecting, you know, like they would use those kind of words with me. Mm -hmm. Um, And then every Sunday we had a a service where my dad would kind of read and, and, and talk about different spiritual ideas. Some days it would be the Bhagavad Gita. Some days it would be the Upanishads. Some days it would be Buddhist texts. Some days we, you know, go in in more of a traditional kind of Christian uh, perspective. Um, and so every Sunday we had these talks. And so I was always exposed to different religious and spiritual ideas and, and just sort of knowing what he did, it, you know, just the, the mind and, and the spirit was always at the forefront of, of my understanding of the world. So when you say spirit, I mean, I, I, I know that kind of has this negative stigma for some people. It's not mm-hmm. talking as religious approach as such. I mean, how would you define the sort of spiritual counseling side of things that you do? Yeah, so I have clients all over the world, and I have clients of every faith and denomination and, and ethnicity and race and sexuality and, and everything. So um, 
I work with atheists as well as evangelical Christians, as well as Orthodox Jewish people, as well as Muslims um, and Buddhists. So to me, when you talk about the spirit or or spirituality or the soul or any of that kind of stuff, um, to me, those are all just synonyms for the unconscious mind. Uh, it's, it's this deeper, softer, quieter, um, more honest part of us uh, where our needs and our beliefs and our fears and um, really the, 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 really the marrow of who we are is, is sort of in that unconscious place. And, you know, when I talk about the unconscious mind, I don't really make a distinction between the unconscious mind and the spirit and the soul. Um, and I, and I do think that when people go very deeply into trance and they get in touch with their unconscious minds and they are face to face with their deepest wounds and their deepest needs and and really in a lot of ways who they truly are um, they are kind of in touch with their soul in that moment and that and that's when a lot of healing happens and i think you know a lot of people um, have had the experience where you're having like a fever dream or uh, maybe you're experimenting with with psychedelics or um, perhaps you're very deep in meditation or you have a near-death experience um, where a lot of the, the the sort of the masks of daily life get stripped away and you're really more in touch with a deeper, more real sense of, of yourself. Um, and, uh, you know, warts and all, right? There's fears down there, there's needs, there's there's pettiness, there's traumas all, all down there. So um, that's kind of my perspective of spirituality. I don't think it's, I don't think it's aligned with any particular religion. I think there's a lot of paths to get there for people, but I think you can have a connection with a deeper part of yourself um, as an atheist or as an nihilist or as an existentialist, an anarchist. I don't think it matters because um, we all have that part of ourselves and it's there waiting for us to explore and utilize and, and hopefully heal. Because that's what really surprised me. When I would say to people, you know, I was interviewing you and I would say you were spiritual, they would go, oh, religious. And I'm saying, no, why does why does it have to be that connection? And I think, is it just something that people are sort of taught, you know, spirituality means Christianity, means, you know. And it was a really bizarre way of looking at me. And I've worked, um, I've dealt with depression. I've looked at NLP. I've looked at, uh, which is neuro-linguistic programming. I've looked at Yeah, I have training in that as well. Um, oh, awesome! Because we we all go into that. Um, sorry, I was just explaining for people who didn't know the um, and it was all these kind of things. And it's like I was so interested in the mind and that. And immediately, people were locking down, going, "No, no, I'm not religious." It's like, "No, you're. It's not. We're not talking in that sense. It's how our brains work. It's the frames. It's the the frames of consciousness and things like that." And then they go, "Oh, no, no, I'm not into psychedelics." And like, "No, no, no." And mm-hmm. I think that's the thing. It's like we look at hypnosis in a bad way sometimes because of the you know the pub show and a hen party or a, and it's so much more than that could you go into a little bit about the different styles i mean you practice is that i'm going to butcher the name sorry the eric Sonnen hypnosis Ericksonian. It's, I, it's based on milton erickson who was a, a psychiatrist and a doctor here in america um, and he lived most of his life in arizona in the desert um, and he just developed a, a very new way of hypnosis but, but in effect, what he did was just kind of bring hypnosis back to its origins in indigenous cultures where the way hypnosis and altered states were utilized, you know, by shamans and medicine people was by telling stories. You know, they would tell stories and it was very conversational. 
Um, and that's what Erickson did, um, but he did it in a medical uh, kind of Western perspective. So it became a new form of hypnosis, but, but as I said, it's very, very old. Um, but in terms of people's perceptions of hypnosis, um, you know, it's interesting when people say, oh, I don't want to deal with that stuff. I don't want to think about that because our very existence is consciousness. I mean, that's consciousness is just awareness. So the fact that you are seeing things, hearing things, feeling things, you know, tasting things, smelling things in your life means that you're conscious, right? And if, and if you faint or something, then you're unconscious because it's just darkness. There's nothing there. So consciousness is what we are. We are consciousness uh, fundamentally, right? When someone, not to get morbid here, but if someone passes away and all that's left is their body, their consciousness has left their body. So consciousness is what we are outside of our bodies and, and it's our experience of the world. So you could say that consciousness is the soul, is the spirit, right? Because when someone loses consciousness, right, they're not there anymore. When their consciousness comes back, they're back. So um, I think it's impossible not to think about this stuff because that's what you are. You are consciousness. Your existence is consciousness. So to just want to kind of block it out or say that it's it's dark or that it's something you're not interested in, um, it's like saying you're not interested in breathing or you're not interested in water. And that doesn't mean that you're not engaging with those things. It just means that you're repressing your awareness of them. Um, but that's not generally a good thing, in my, in my opinion. Um, but I think in general, you have, there's kind of two consciousnesses, there's two perspectives of anything. One is this very um, black and white, cut and dry perspective. Oh, well, spirituality is religion. Hypnosis is for parties. Mm -hmm. And, you know, uh, music is for entertainment. Food is for, for enjoying yourself. You know, people have these very, like, cut and dry perspectives of the world, what's good and what's bad. And that's a very conscious perspective, right? Um, then there's the unconscious perspective, which is a place where black and white kind of melt together, where there's not so much of a, a, a sense of good and bad, right and wrong, um, black or white. And we all go there when we sleep and dream. And that's why our dreams are so weird, right? Our dreams are like completely our dreams are just like a stew of reality. You know, they're, they're not, they're not concise or clear. Um, and that's because our dreams are the language of our unconscious mind. So there is a place beyond language and distinction and judgment and, and all these things. And, and that's what the unconscious mind is. So when you go to that place, um, you, you're kind of transcending all of those concerns and those labels of, Oh, no, no, I'm a Christian. So I can't do hypnosis or no, I'm an atheist. So I don't believe in hypnosis, you know, so, um, which I've heard both of those things. Um, but I think the people experience consciousness and the unconscious mind all the time, whether or not they call it hypnosis or, or, you know, spirituality or whatever. Um, it's kind of unavoidable because that's the nature of existence. You can't really, uh, just cause you don't want to talk about it doesn't mean it's not happening. 
because that's why I was so keen to have you on because like I loved your TEDx talk and I love the idea the because it's like people don't seem to understand that there's two parts of the brain moving you know like I look at it as like the unconscious mind is the programs where the conscious mind is your kind of you're the RAM of the computer it just loads up the program that the unconscious mind provides and sure. yeah it's it's that kind of thing. I tried to explain it to people, and I can see them kind of going, "What is this? Some Matrix stuff?" You know, and it's like, <laughs> no, no, it, it's it's difficult for somebody, and that's why I like sending them the link to your like your TEDx talk, or you know, because people automatically go, oh, "Hypnosis, that's like sleep," you know, and that's me, Dan. You know, and I wouldn't, I couldn't do that, but we can all be hypnotized. You, you've mentioned, you know, that's a myth that we can't yeah. because we can all enter that trance state. So how do you see, I mean, you see some amazing results from using hypnosis for breaking down inner, inner health problems, um, for dealing with chronic pain, for, I don't know, do you work on inner child regression, that sort of thing? Do you find that, like, how does hypnosis deal differently than other healing modalities? And, you know, the sort of standard diagnostic approaches where you would go mm-hmm. to a doctor, they give you some tablets and come back in six months. How does hypnosis sure. work better, do you think? Yeah. So every hypnotist is going to practice differently and every hypnotist that you talk to will define hypnosis differently. Um, so hypnosis to me is kind of a catch all term. And the way that I practice now, um, is really not like what any other hypnotists are doing. And I'm not saying that's toot my own horror. I'm just saying that because I haven't come up with a, a flashy name for a new form of therapy yet. Um, as people like to do, but I think in general, when you're trying to make changes to behavior or to trauma or to emotional states or uh, bad habits or you know anything um, that you would traditionally you know want to fix, um, when you're trying to make any of those changes, it's important to realize that the reason that you're struggling with these things is because you're not deciding to do them, right? People aren't deciding to be hooked on drugs. Maybe they make that first choice, but once they're hooked, they're hooked, right? People aren't deciding to feel anxious or to have panic attacks. People aren't choosing to suffer from trauma. People aren't uh, deciding to have money blocks where they just spend all the money that they earn. Um, Those aren't conscious choices that people are making. So that means that they're unconscious, right? It's, It's as unconscious as breathing or blinking or sleeping at night. So that means it's not something that can change through conscious effort because it's not a conscious problem. So a lot of methods of change try and get people to uh, to think differently, right? Or to behave differently, or to just be aware of the habit or the pattern that they don't wanna do anymore, and then to kind of muscle it to be different, right? And, and it feels like that. It feels like you're really exerting effort and you you slip up a lot, right? And you fall back into it. Or with something like anxiety, it's just always there. And, and maybe it goes away for a minute when you do your breathing exercise, but it comes right back. So those are all conscious approaches to unconscious problems. So I think any unconscious method of change, the benefit there is that you're changing things at the level that they exist, right? So again, if someone has anxiety and they don't even know why it's there, it's just a it's constant feeling of uneasiness. And I I work with a lot of people on anxiety. That's a that's a specialty of mine. Um, when it's just there and they don't know why, <clears throat> excuse me, you can't just think your way out of it, and you can't just you can't just change that behavior because it's just a feeling that's there. 
So, but when you go and work with it unconsciously, you're finding out exactly why it's there. Um, and you're working with it again at the level that it exists. I always say that, you know, trying to make unconscious change to an unconscious problem uh, with conscious effort, right? Like journaling or talking or just kind of analyzing. Um, it's a bit like trying to eat soup with a fork. You know, it, it does work. Uh, it takes a very long time, you know, oh, yeah. to like, to like consciously change your patterns and behavior through just sheer will. It takes a long time to do that. It's very hard and it can be very painful. Um, but you will, you know, you will eat that soup. It'll take you a while and you won't really, it'll be cold by the time you're done with it. Um, so with, with hypnosis and other unconscious methods, the goal is to change the problem at the level that the problem exists, which is at the unconscious level, uh, because again, it's outside of people's awareness. So it is fundamentally unconscious. Um, there's a lot of answers to your question that, that alone is a whole other conversation. It's like what makes hypnosis different, but um, that would be my my most uh, rudimentary answer for you. Because this is where it's difficult, because like, I've had experiences of hypnosis when I was younger, and I've used CBT and things like that, and I'm so interested in how the brain works and entering flow states and things, and I'm thinking, mm -hmm. well, that's a podcast on its own. That's a podcast on its own, just about yeah. dreams and things. Because I don't think a lot of people sort of understand like, how much our bias our outlook on life our kind of thinking is shaped by our parents by our friends by our childhood oh, yeah. by you know how we're raised and how we create an identity from it how do you think like our reality is shaped by what we interact with on a daily basis how do, like do you see similarities in the problems that p patients are coming to you with or is it just kind of unique and personalized to the person you know yeah great question so i think the content is always different, but the structure is always the same. So I think, you know, people have experiences when they're very young and they don't necessarily have to be very traumatic experiences. It could just be your parent just telling you what's right and what's wrong, or uh, just sort of learning how to behave at a young age, learning what's expected of you. Um, and every human being has that experience. Uh, it will always be different because obviously every parent is different, every culture is different, every household changes. But fundamentally, we all learn how to be and we learn what's safe and what's dangerous and we learn what's right and what's wrong. And most people who suffer from things like trauma or anxiety or limiting beliefs or bad habits, um, they're, they're just running on old ideas. They're running on old beliefs or, you know, to use your analogy, old operating system. It would be like if you're still running on like Windows 99 or something, you know, um, like Windows 2000. Uh, so people are, in a lot of cases, stuck in a belief or an experience that happened when they were like, or that formed when they were like six or seven years old. They're just stuck there. And it's not serving them anymore because, of course, what serves a six or a seven-year-old will certainly not serve a 33-year-old right? Or an 80 year old. Um, right. So that, that's what a lot of problems are is just sort of out of date understandings, out of date learnings. Um, so I think that is very common. The way that every person uh, develops these understandings and stores them, you know, the, that doesn't change really either. 
what those beliefs are, what those experiences are, does change. But the structure, the way that they're stored, the way that they are implemented, all that stuff is is pretty uniform, actually. Because I work with people everywhere from like Australia to Hong Kong, all over the United States, the UK, all over Europe. Um, I've worked with clients now on on six continents, um, or five continents rather. I don't count in Antarctica. And what I've seen is that people are very, very similar. Uh, and our unconscious mind works in very similar ways um, in terms of how it processes experiences. Those experiences are different, right? The experience of someone growing up in like Bucharest and Romania is very different than someone growing up in like, you know, Miami Beach, Florida. But um, the way that their unconscious mind stores and processes and digests and internalizes those experiences is, is almost exactly the same, I've found. So, um, and that, that's very helpful to know. Um, but to answer your other question from before about hypnosis, right? If everyone can be hypnotized, you asked, right? And you mentioned going into hypnosis. And, you know, I think that's a perspective that hypnotists have perpetuated. And I think it's very much to their disservice, this idea that trance is like a light switch, right? You're in or you're out. Mm -hmm. and, and then once you're in, oh, how deep are they? And then we have these sort of measures of levels of deepness uh, for hypnosis. And I think that's completely wrong. Um, I think in my experience, trance is much more fluid. It's not like a light switch. It's, it's a gradient. Um, just how consciousness is a gradient, right? You could go and, and, you know, anyone listening to this can resonate with this experience where, you know, maybe you're on a long drive or you're on a long train ride and you just kind of start zoning out, looking out the window and daydreaming. Um, but then maybe the conductor comes over and asks for your ticket or, or someone needs to sit next to you or there's some commotion or whatever. And boom, you break from that and now you're aware again, right? And then once things settle down, your consciousness slips back into the daydream. And then maybe even you slip into a deeper daydream and maybe you fall asleep for a minute and then you come back too. So our, our consciousness is always in flux. You know, even as you're listening to this, Ian, your consciousness is changing. You're going from, you know, from beta to alpha brainwaves, maybe into theta, maybe up to gamma. Um, so that's always changing. Uh, and so hypnosis is not really a, a thing. Hypnosis is not an it. Uh, it it's an, it's a, at its most concrete, I think it's a collection of tools. It's a strategy. Um, but, but the way I look at it is it, it's a shared experience of, of trance, you know, of, of us kind of collectively changing our consciousness. Um, that's just a fancy way of saying kind of slipping deeper, um, going into another, another place of awareness where you're able to access different kinds of information and listen more deeply and understand things from a different perspective. Um, but I, I don't think that's a, okay, you're in trance and now you're out. I think it's, because when I work with people, people go into trance and then they come out and it's a bit lighter and then they go in very deeply and then they come out even more lightly. And then it's, it's sort of this, it's a very fluid thing. And it's something that we all do every day. You know, we all go in and out of trance states every day. Uh, we go in and out of being really super focused to being kind of in a daydreamy state to being in a trance, maybe falling asleep. Um, so we all kind of move throughout these different consciousnesses all the time. So for someone to say, oh, well, you can't, you know, I can't go into trance. 
Um, anyone who anyone who sleeps at night can go into trance because that's that's pretty much pretty much what you're doing every day. I mean, that alone was just why I'm so keen to have you on because I would see that everywhere. You know, oh, I can't be hypnotized, and people are like, "Well, have you ever been daydreaming like on a long drive and not remember how you get there?" Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, and there's exactly. so many examples of it. Like, because you and you talked about like how our brain waves are affected in a typical day, how we switch between frames of consciousness during the day, and you know, and it was so well explained and how you kind of you just took away all the myths and the bullshit that's behind you know like the use of like hypnosis and what it actually is and what a trance state actually is and you know you've removed the sort of the razzmatazz that these kind of stage shows have to actually show how it can truly benefit somebody and I, I love that and I think that's what people struggle with it's like oh but I've got to go and see somebody I've got to be face to face with them I've got to have them and looking in my eyes and all this kind of stuff but you use like metaphors and stories to and you can do it by just phone alone how do you sort of access the brain in that sense without actually physically being in the room with somebody how do you kind of start talking to the unconscious mind because you've said you can do that when they're awake how, how is that possible yeah, I mean, there's different perspectives on this, but I mean, all my clients are over the phone. Uh, I don't see any clients in person, and I haven't for four years. Um, it, it's not necessary, I don't find, to be in person. A lot of people will disagree with me very, uh, very strongly, but um, my experience has been very positive doing only phone sessions. I don't do a, a video either, so what people will do is they'll put on headphones, and they'll lie down on their couch or in their bed, and they close their eyes. And because the headphones are in there, um, my voice kind of takes on this uh, almost like omniscient energy to it because there's no there's no locational quality to it. My voice is just in their head and their eyes are closed. So it's like I'm just this, this voice coming in from somewhere else. Um, and, and in some cases, it's like I'm a voice in their head actually. Uh, so it almost feels like I'm sort of shrinking down and joining them in their own unconscious mind with them. Uh, and I'm sort of there in their unconscious mind, uh, almost like a, a sort of a magic school bus kind of scenario. I don't know if you have that in the UK, but um, but I think I'm sorry, I forgot what your question was. I mean, <laughs> is that the kind of like, that's just it's, it's almost like why I wear headphones during an interview because I feel like it speaks to by like inside me it's more if you know what i mean yeah like yeah. it feels like you're speaking directly to the 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 bs areas i want to fix or the bits sure. i want to grow up or heal or whatever yeah. you know yeah i remember and, i remember your question now i remember it now um you were asking about doing this over the phone and using storytelling mm-hmm. and metaphor right yeah because that's what i really can't because we're very kind of like uh, social animals. So how do we use like, you know, cause you use NLP and CBT. How do you, how does what you say shape our mind more than actually f- the physical touch and uh, mm-hmm. the physical being there, if you know what I mean? Yeah. So t- touch is somewhat important. I mean, when someone's in deep trance, um, their attention is purely internalized. So they're not really that aware of their, their external body um, because their attention is on what's going on inside. Um, so people become aware of the emotions that they feel in their body, the sensations that they feel inside their body. Um, they become aware of images and internal sounds, memories, um, but it's all very internalized. 
So me being there in person doesn't really make much of a difference. And if anything, I think people are more comfortable in A, in their own homes, uh, and B, without some stranger sitting two feet away from them while they have their eyes closed. You know, there's a, there's a real vulnerability to that of closing your eyes in front of a person that you don't know that well. That's what um, I found. And going very deeply and trying to be comfortable. But what I find is when I do the work over the phone, um, audio only, people don't have to worry about what they look like. They're not self-conscious. They're in their own house. Um, and they don't. They, they feel private there. So they lie on, on their bed um, and they're not being seen. And it's just a very private uh, experience. And people are able to go much more deeply and are able to feel more comfortable being vulnerable in that context, I find. Um, so I find it more helpful. But in terms of the, the use of storytelling and metaphor, the, the language of our unconscious mind is in feeling and images and stories. Um, and that's why our dreams are stories, uh, because that our dreams are basically our unconscious mind communicating to us. Uh, and so if we want to communicate back to our unconscious mind, it makes sense to use the language that our unconscious mind uses with us, which is stories, images, um, narratives. And so we're kind of working in the language uh, that it uses. I think a really big mistake that I would argue that most hypnotists make, um, and I think it's just a, a flaw of thinking, um, and, it, and I think it's also a, a cultural problem, um, is that most hypnotists are really focused on a very systematic approach and a very black and white perspective of trance and direct suggestions. And, you know, okay, well, we're going to do our yes set followed by our, our eye fixation, followed by our element induction, followed by our deepener, followed by fractionation, followed by, uh, you know, pacing and leading and maybe some direct suggestions, right? And it's very, uh, and maybe you recognize some of those terms in your studies, but it's, it, it's, it's very rote and it's the same for everybody. And it's, it's very medical, it's very sterile, um, and it's very Western. Uh, it's, 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 it's essentially the hypnotic equivalent to popping a pill. Um, it, and it's, it's very uh, rigid. And I don't find, I, in my opinion, when you work that way, you're, you're, you're not doing anything that much different than, than telling someone to pop a pill, in my opinion. Because unless you go down to the root cause of an experience or of a, of a problem, um, you're just covering it with direct suggestions. And that may lead to a change, um, but that change is only as strong as that person's perception of that suggestion. And if that wears off over time, which I think a lot of the time it does, uh, the problem comes back because the need is still there. The root cause is still there. I work with a lot of people who, you know, they talk to me when they come to me and they say, Lucas, I've, I've seen a hypnotist before for this very problem. And they say either it didn't work or they say it worked for a couple of months and the problem came back with a vengeance. Um, and, and I have to kind of tell them how what I do is different. And I think one of the fundamental ways that it's different is I'm not interested in just repressing symptoms or even just treating symptoms with direct suggestions. I'm really curious as to what those symptoms are a representation of. 
symptoms are a sign of something, right? We know that symptoms aren't the thing. Symptoms are a signal of something else, right? Like if you have a fever, the fever isn't the thing. The fever is a sign of something else. The fever is a sign that your body is fighting something off, right? So the, the Western model of mental health and medicine is that, well, if someone has a symptom uh, like anxiety or trouble sleeping, then we do whatever we can to just get rid of that symptom. Um, and that can sometimes work, but it, it's usually through brute force. Um, take these sleeping pills, right? Or take, take these anti-anxiety medication, or I'm gonna put you in trance and basically just give you these direct suggestions that you're not feeling the way that you're feeling, that you're feeling calm and peaceful and that you're safe. Um, and all that's great, but it's not really addressing the, the, what the symptom is representative of, right? If someone feels anxious, I'm curious as to what they feel anxious about. Where does that feeling come from? What are its origins? Why is it there? What, what purpose is it serving? Um, and in my, in my experience, until you really go deeper and address the, the cause of the symptom, not just the symptom, um, you're basically just playing whack-a-mole where you knock down a symptom and it pops up later or it pops up as another symptom. I see this all the time where people, uh, they quit smoking, but now they're binge eating. They're able to sleep better now, but they have panic attacks, right? Or they, their anxiety goes away, uh, but now they have uh, uh, fits of anger. Um, and and that's, that's what we call symptom substitution. It's, it's just whack-a-mole. And that's what happens when you just try to treat symptoms instead of going deeper and trying to figure out the, the cause of those symptoms. I love that way of explaining it because – you know, when you look at your site and you're like, you can wear your sweatpants, you can just sit back in your chair and, you know, put your headphones on and I speak to you directly and I heal it. Or, you know, we'd go into what you need to resolve and you you have amazing results. You have some great testimonials on your website. You've got the YouTube video where you show you work with the girl going to driving over the water who has a fear of it and how yeah, quickly yeah. you can make the changes. And I think that's the the thing that really struck me was how quickly you can make a change in somebody and the deep held belief, the core belief in them, you know, like how you can regress real trauma in somebody and actually let them come back from like, you know, take them to the, that point where they're struggling in their timeline, resolve it and show them a kind of new way of looking at it. So they can then come back to the present with a better way of dealing with it, with a new sort of outlook in life. And I loved how you could say that you could change these problems that they've maybe struggled with the whole life. And you could see real fixes in, say, six to eight weeks, rather than just, like you're saying, changing the symptom, knocking it off there, because you're dealing with the real issues. And do you find, like, things, people are coming to you for trauma, like, real deep-seated issues that they can't get anywhere else? Sorry, they can't get fixed anywhere else. Is a better way of saying it. Um, no, I mean, I, I have a, a, I take on the perspective that indigenous healers take on, which is that um, when someone comes to me, I'm, I'm a stop on their path uh, to healing, and sometimes that means I'm the person who's going to help them really have a huge breakthrough and transform their lives. Uh, other times, I'm just there to help push the ball a little bit forward. Maybe they see some changes. Maybe they have some insights. Um, maybe they're resistant, maybe they react to me, which sometimes happen, you know, people, when you're, when you're doing this work with people, it's not, it's not so uh, clean all the time. You know, people get, 
you know, when we go down to the roots and I'm touching on a nerve, some people get really scared or they get mad at me or they just don't want to deal with it or they're not ready to deal with it. Um, and so then they just, they abruptly stop working with me. Um, and that's not to say that we like make people face their deepest, darkest, you know, it's not, it's not like we're just really like just shoving people's faces and the worst stuff that's ever happened to them. Cause that's irresponsible. But when you get down to the root, you're really getting down to like the, the, the core wound, the, the, the main thing, like the, 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 what's actually affecting you. Um, and although it's not uncomfortable or not painful, it, it, it can be difficult to do that. And not everybody's ready to do that. And sometimes my work is just to show people that it's there and then they go on their path and maybe they see other people and get other healing. So um, I try to keep that perspective as much as possible. And my goal is just to help the person that's in front of me. And some people come to me and in one session, we're able to change something permanently that they've been struggling with for 30 years. Um, and then other times people come to me and we need to work for a few months to do that. Um, and then sometimes people come to me and we work for a few months and we do see some changes, but they don't, they don't get all the way where they need to be. Um, but that's, that's any healing modality. Uh, it's not, it's, it, I, I'm always, you know, I, I recommend anybody to be wary of anybody who says, oh, well, I'll fix you in five sessions and it's all over. Mm. Um, I, I just, that's just, human beings are not cars. You know, you can't just swap out parts and fix you. It's, it, it, there's more nuance to it than that. Um, but with this method, I have been able to, to help people who have been struggling with problems for their whole lives and and to do so very quickly and i think one of the reasons for that is because most people when they're working with their problems are spending their whole lives trying to get rid of these problems or trying to fight them or trying to repress them right that's that's the majority of of sort of the the, the treatment of of things like anxiety or trauma is how do we cope with this just just numb it or how do you successfully uh repress it ignore it how do you just make it go away right um the path that i take with people is how do we take this trauma this anxiety and really get down to the root of what it is not just the symptom but like really understand like where does this come from what's the origin of this at the unconscious level and then we aim to not fight it or destroy it or get rid of it or any of that kind of stuff because um, it's a part of them and, and to, to, to fight it is to fight a part of yourself and that's a losing battle. Um, and it often creates more problems. So what we aim to do is to understand the root cause and then to transform it. And that's very different than removing something, right? Because when you transform it, you're taking all the energy and all the attention that was put into this feeling or this pattern and you're redirecting it into something that can be more useful for them. Um, and, and that, that's a, a winning strategy I find. Cause that, that's awesome. I mean, I, I love how you, you can explain it so simply and you can remove the stigma, the fear of it, because I think that's a thing. A lot of people kind of go, Oh no, I couldn't talk about that to somebody. You know, oh, I couldn't talk about my, my, my dark area. You yeah. know, and I, I don't want to shine a light on that. And I think that's the thing is we, like, we kind of just put a bandaid on something and hope for the best. And I was really keen to see how you kind of dealt with somebody to get to like the open up to get to that real issue. I think you said it was mm 
like anxiety people were it's the way people were framing it like as a noun not a verb you know they were kind of sure. just i was really intrigued at that way of that mindset of looking at it differently like i like the idea of transforming it for example i can be like i do brazilian jiu-jitsu and i always feel like i'm doing it say 50 60 percent of what i'm actually capable of doing because mm-hmm. i never want to be in the spotlight i never want to step out the shadow and oh, I, never, sure. I never seem to push myself enough. And I'm, I often wonder if that's back to being bullied in childhood, that, you know, you kind of... Yeah, probably. They made fun of that sort of thing. So how do you start, like, say that, like an example like that, how would you start working with somebody to not just say it's because you're, you're anxious and here's some beta blockers. How would you then work and go, okay, but this is what it's actually stemming from, and then transform that? Is it a, like a kind of an example you could use? Yeah, that's a great that's a great example, uh, and that's something that I would work with people on all the time, stuff like that. Yeah, so if you were just to take beta blockers, uh, all you're doing is just shutting off that feeling in your body, uh, which isn't really doing much. Um, but the the first question is right. So if it goes back to being bullied as a kid, right, um, then immediately this this feeling that's there, the question is, what purpose does it serve? Um, because every feeling, every behavior serves a purpose, no matter how seemingly destructive it is. Uh, it, serves, it serves a purpose. So, and that's something I've seen before. So I, I could just, you know, make some assumptions. Um, again, this is sort of goes back to what we were saying that, that, you know, people can have a lot of similarities. But if you were bullied as a kid, um, when you expressed interest in things or when you kind of put yourself out there, um, then there's going to be this part of you that kind of comes into being that's there to protect you from that, mm. to protect you from ridicule and harm, physical or emotional. And the way it may have chosen to do that is to keep you under the radar, to keep you small, to keep you quiet. And that way you're not seen because if you're not seen by bullies then they can't bully you. Right. Yeah. And, I find like self-sabotage, for example, you know, I'll deliberately mm-hmm. make a mistake, which I know I'm better than because you're trying to avoid being seen. Um, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So that 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 pattern serves a purpose. It's for safety. It's for protection. And this kind of goes back to what we were just saying. But the that pattern would serve you well as a little kid, because if you're a little kid and you're being bullied, or you're you know, for some people it's like they're being you know yelled at by their parents. What do you do in that situation? What can a kid do? You can't yell back you'll be bullied harder, right? So what do you do? You get really quiet and you get small and you turn invisible. And that's a really good strategy if you're like an eight-year-old kid and, and you're scrawny and you don't really have much other choice. That's not a great strategy if you're an adult. Um, and so the first thing we would do is look at what the function of that uh, pattern is. Um, it's it's really probably just a feeling that comes up for you. That's that's a, it's a stop sign. It's a feeling that says no, 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 don't go further because if you go further, then you'll be seen, and then bad things will happen. And so we would work with that feeling um, that's sort of blocking you, that's telling you it's it's not safe. And we would understand what it's there to do for you, which is probably to keep you safe. And then the job is about helping that part of you evolve, helping it learn a new way of keeping you safe uh, a way that is more appropriate for an adult uh, rather than a little kid and we would also probably work with some of the memories that came into uh, or that that were responsible for the formation of this pattern 
you know, we have these early experiences and they're really strong. And in response to those experiences, we kind of form these new programs, right? These new patterns, a way of keeping safe. And these patterns are kind of locked into the age that they were when this happened and also locked into these experiences. So that's the way I like to work. Um, we release those memories, letting your unconscious mind know that those experiences are the exception, not the rule, that you shouldn't just expect that all the time. And that way it can feel like it happened a long time ago instead mm. of like it happened, like it's happening. Um, and then we also work with the feeling and the pattern, the unconscious kind of program to help it evolve, to help it serve you in a different way. Um, and so as you can hear, all this is about transforming. None of this is about, okay, well, we find the program, then we just remove it. We take it out with a fish hook. You know, um, It's more like we find the program, understand what it's doing for you, and then help it do that in a more appropriate way. Um, that way you can still have a part of you that keeps you safe, but it keeps you safe maybe by helping you uh, be disciplined or being more confident or being more grounded, being more focused, more present. Uh, those are better ways for an adult to keep safe. Um, and so... In that way, this part of you that was once seen as a problem, maybe something that you were kind of mad at having, suddenly becomes an ally. It becomes a, a, a part of you that's in your service, um, and that's a that's healing to me. Healing is not healing isn't just repressing a part of yourself or removing it. Healing is forgiving this part of yourself and then helping it actually become a great service to you um, and kind of befriending it. Uh, that's really healing, and that feels that feels like something different than fighting a battle against something that's inside of you, which is I don't think helpful. I love that. I mean, that was truly amazing because it really hit home. Like, because there's a lot of times I've been sitting discussing things and people going, "I'll oh, just get over it," and you know, like, if it's a <laughs> core belief or like a deeply held issue that you've got, um, no matter what it is, you know, people just don't seem to understand. It's like we create an identity, we create a version of ourselves based off what we believe. And like you're saying, you can't just go in and go, yep, that's it off. You have to go in and kind of figure out like, what what's it trying to teach you? How can you learn from it? And how can you use it? And is that why we kind of would say when we have these kind of things blipping up, we feel like that age, you know, like you could be 50, 60, but feel like an 18 year old because the cause of it happened at that point in your life? Yeah, the, the pattern itself is kind of locked in at that age. And when, you know, that's essentially what a trauma is, is an experience that happened a long time ago that feels like it's actually still happening. And that's why, and that's essentially, you know, what a trigger is. It's like someone has a trauma. Let's say it happened in a car or something. I don't know. And they feel like it's still present. So that means when they get into a car, they're they're back in that experience. Um, because it still feels fresh, even if it happened 50 years ago. And the the behavioral response that they'll engage with will be the one that they did when, when it, that event happened, uh, which may be when they were four years old or two years old. Um, and so that's that's essentially what's happening. And so our goal is to change the way that that memory is stored, but also the way that they respond to that emotion and, and the need that it's meeting. I would say don't don't look at your inner life as as a jungle of monsters you want to look at it more a place that holds friends of yours that maybe need your help i think that's a that's a 
I mean, that that's a perspective that we're kind of all taught. And I think that's a, a huge failure of the, the kind of the, the mental health establishment and you know, to, to sort of see these things as monsters to defeat as opposed to wounded parts of us that need our, that need our help. That's um, so I would, starting there is a good place. It's time for a quick break. There are millions of potential products to buy, so how do you know which ones are worth your hard-earned money? Simple. You go to nextlevelguy.com affiliates and explore those that will transform and improve your life. You'll find deals, listener exclusives, and special offers with some great companies. Recommendations are 100% honest and only on items Ian has tried or believes in. The companies showcased will make you a better man in all areas of your life. Simply go to nextlevelguy.com slash affiliates and level up. So one of the things I really was interested in was how the brain sort of fluctuates, um, you know, between the frames of consciousness during the day. How does it sort of affect our thinking and like our head and conversations and things like that? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think the first thing to understand is, you know, what a state of consciousness is. And we are, in essence, consciousness. That's what we are. Um, that's really all we are is just awareness. And that's what consciousness is. Um, when you talk about like the brainwave states, you're talking about um, different levels of consciousness at, at more of a macro scale. So at sort of the starting point, you have the, the beta brainwave state, which is just kind of waking alert state, probably what you're in right now when you're, when you're doing things, when you're focused. Um, and then below that, you have alpha brainwave states, which is more of a daydreaming kind of light trance state. And I work with people a lot in alpha brainwave states. That's the state you're in when you're on a long uh, car ride or train ride and you're kind of looking out the window at the clouds and you're just kind of daydreaming a bit. Um, that's the state that we're in when we're bored. And then below that is, is a theta brainwave state, which is more of a trance state. And that's what you're in when you're in a very deep meditation or just before you fall asleep or when you're in hypnosis um, or if you're doing a very intense round of yoga or something. Um, and then below that is delta, which is just sleep. Um, that's that's deep, sort of dreamless sleep. Um, so those are sort of the, the macro categories. And there's a couple other brainwaves as well. There's gamma, which is sort of um, hyper, hyper alert and focused, sometimes anxious, um, hyper energized. Uh, but those are kind of the, the macro um, states of consciousness. But within all of them, there are other states of consciousness, which are more akin to emotions. So you could be in theta brainwave state and be feeling sad, or you could be in in beta brainwave state, kind of a focused, clear brainwave state, and feel angry. Um, you know, depending on what emotion you're experiencing, that will also change your consciousness. Um, and then, depending on which brainwave state you're in, that will kind of change the depth of that experience. So anger in theta brainwave states can show up as like a nightmare in a dream. Anger in beta brainwave states can show up as uh, just kind of, you know, sort of run-of-the-mill day-to-day annoyance. So the brainwave states kind of show us the different depth of consciousness, but then in each of those depths, you can experience different states of consciousness, um, which are, in essence, emotional states. 
because I found that really interesting was like how the the conscious mind speaks with the unconscious mind. Mm-hmm. You've said like that our beliefs are shaped like shape our reality in the world. How mm-hmm. do we how do we work with these kind of beliefs, alter them, and not let them mm-hmm. become part of our identity? You know, like the I'm just an angry person. I'm this. I'm that. Yeah. How do we f- stop mm-hmm. them becoming self fulfilling prophecies and actually? understand the message and use them to benefit ourselves yeah with the emotions yeah are you referencing the the ted talk that i gave about beliefs yeah i mean it's uh, every time i start here you go into things i'm like well i've got to ask about that beliefs and stuff mm-hmm. how how do we how does our, our reality shaped because like both of us could look at the exact same situation and take different meanings from it because yeah. of our own personal bias etc absolutely how, how do we make sure it's not we're not letting our emotions shape who we identify as and we're actually learning from them or using them to enhance ourselves, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you know, your beliefs and your emotions are tied together in very intimate ways. And I'm glad you asked about beliefs because I'm working on a part two, sort of a follow-up to the TED Talk that I gave all those years ago, talking about beliefs and what I've learned since then. But, you know, what forms your beliefs fundamentally are, are your experiences. Um, the reason that you can look at a situation and feel or think a certain way about it and someone else feels and thinks very differently is because you and that person have different experiences. Um, you know, we have our experiences and then those experiences affect our physiology and those experiences affect our emotions. Maybe in the, in the moment of those experiences, we feel sad or angry or scared or confused or whatever it is. And then with those emotions and our physiology, that then affects our imagination, meaning we then uh, start to imagine those experiences continuing or repeating. Um, and then those that imagination will then affect your behavior because now you sort of expect certain things to happen based on what already happened and how you felt about it. And then your behavior will tend to create uh, beliefs. Um, you know, your behavior kind of leads to more experiences that reinforce the old experience, which then starts to create that belief. But once that belief is there from the experience becoming your physiology, becoming your imagination, becoming your belief, um, then the whole loop kind of flips around and it goes back the other way. Then it becomes your belief influences your imagination, or rather your belief influences your experience, which then influences your imagination, which then influences your physiology. Um, which then influences your experience again. So it is sort of self-fulfilling at that point, but a belief has its origins in usually early experiences. So one of the best ways to change belief, and this is what I like to do with people, is to find the what are called the gestalts. Uh, and a gestalt is kind of the, the either the earliest or the most intense experience of something. So for instance, if somebody is afraid of swimming, they think that if they get into the water, they'll die. Um, chances are they had an experience like that. Or, or you know, even, even it could have been a parent telling them that the water was very, very dangerous. And that if they got, got in it, they would die. So there's some experience that goes back. So you find that experience um, and you change that experience. You change the way that it's stored in their unconscious mind. And when you change that experience, you're on your way to changing the belief. Um, and so that, that's the best way to change a belief. Another really fast way to change a belief is 
uh, a great technique and sort of understanding that something that you believe to be true has a very different feeling and look and structure in your unconscious mind than something that you don't believe to be true. And so what I do with people is sort of find out the difference between those two categories. Um, and then once we find that out, we can apply the same structure of things that they don't believe to be true to the things that they do believe to be true. And then you can sort of unravel a belief like that. Um, but I, I find the, the sort of the deeper and more um, lasting approach is to go all the way back to the gestalt, to the experience that created that belief and, uh, and changing that. And then the, uh, the next thing to do would be to make sure that there's no, uh, there's no secondary gain. There's no benefit to them having that belief because that's the other thing that would keep it around if there's some benefit that they gain by maintaining that belief. So to use your example, like if someone says, oh, I'm an angry person, then that means they have many past experiences of being angry, feeling angry, um, or they've just felt angry very consistently and, and so they've applied it to themselves. Um, so generally speaking, if someone does that, it's usually one of two reasons. If someone says that they're an angry person or says that they're a type of person um, in that way, usually it's because they've either given up hope at changing that and they're just going to own it. The other is they're benefiting in some way from being angry or they, they like that image of themselves. Um, and that's sort of the secondary gain coming in. Um, but for things like that, you know, it's super important to be and I say this to everybody, it's really important that we're very careful about the things that we say and how we talk about the problems that we experience. Because as soon as you start talking about something like that, you are solidifying it in many ways. So people will say, oh, well, I am I am a, a manic depressive, or I am an anxious person, or I am an angry person, or that's just who I am. You know, people say things like that. And I always caution people to be really careful about that because you're you're saying an I am statement. You're you're just you're saying what you are, um, and that's pr much more permanent than saying I feel angry sometimes, or I experience anger way more than I'd like to, or I I find myself anxious in a lot of situations, but I'd like to feel more peaceful. You know, that's a much better way to talk about a problem without owning it and making it a part of who you are. Um, so that kind of stuff forms beliefs too. You know, how you talk about what you have going on and, you know, saying I'm an angry person. It's very different than saying I, I experience anger much more than I'd like to, you know, those are two very different experiences. I mean, just that alone will probably have helped so many people because your TED talk and beliefs was like so eye-opening because it was, I was thinking, yeah, I'm not really that bad. And then as I started looking at what I identify, like my what I believe are my core beliefs, I was like, ooh, where was that shaped from? Well, where was that? You know, and I'm kind of like, is that me? Is that the identity? You know, am I just owning an emotion rather than an actual belief? You know, and it was... It yeah. really kind of gets you thinking, and I can see why, like, people are getting more into like age regression, looking at why they feel stuck mentally at certain ages and things like that. We're actually kind of looking at ourselves deeper now, rather than just saying I'm just an aggressive person. Like you're saying, there's I feel aggressive at times. Why do I feel that? And identifying these issues. You've said like our dreams are a stew of like our you know our conscious and unconscious mind. 
are things like mental health, negative thoughts, I know you're not a sort of therapist, but are these a kind of symptom because you want to work with people to get them to a point where there's no limits in their mind, find that point in their mind? Is, neg- is Are things like that a sign or, or dreams or negative sort of behaviours, etc., a sign that something's not right that we need to look within? Yeah, I think... Um, and yeah, you're right. I'm not a therapist. You know, in traditional therapy, they work in the diagnostic model, which says, mm-hmm. you know, you have symptoms, you have ailments, you could be healthy or unhealthy. Um, but I don't really fall into that category. So even the idea of like negative thoughts or something wrong, um, it, it's really a question of, is it serving the person? So someone who says, I'm an aggressive person, my first question would be, well, do you like that? Do you want to be an aggressive person? And if their answer is, yeah, I do, I want to be aggressive, it, it helps me. And I, I like being that way. I would say, cool, great, you're good. You know, there's no there's nothing to work on there. Um, the, the question is always, is it serving them? Is it is it helpful? And so with dreams, dreams are just communications from your unconscious mind. It's a, it's a deeper, quieter part of you showing up as you're in an altered state and, and communicating with you, essentially. So I work a lot with dreams. And we use them as communications. So we interpret the dreams and look at them as sort of a little message in a bottle um, from their unconscious. And sometimes it points us in a particular direction. Sometimes it just tells us where they're at, how they're feeling about things. Um, but at its best, it's it's a very concise expression of what they're going through in, in their unconscious mind. Uh, for example, I, I worked with a client recently whose mom was uh, very uh, hypervigilant and anxious all the time. And, uh, and even her grandmother was hypervigilant and anxious all the time. So it was this sort of like passed on thing. And now this client of mine is, is struggling with these feelings of, of sort of being hypervigilant and anxious with her own kids. And she had this dream that um, she was in uh, a cabin and in the cabin was her mom, and in the cabin was her mom's mom, her grandmother, and in the cabin was a tiger. And the four of these figures were in this small space together, and we didn't need to interpret that, but we could work with that imagery. That imagery is so perfect. Um, it's so perfect to describe what's going on for this person and where it came from and that she's sort of locked in this little room with a wild, dangerous animal with her mom and her grandmother. And they're all kind of sharing this, this experience together. So it kind of showed us what, what this pattern was and, and again, where it came from and it's, and it's sort of a function and it's, it's also, it's sort of structure. And so we were able to actually work with that dream as a, a sort of a visual metaphor um, for that pattern. And by changing the imagery in the dream, we were able to change the pattern. So it's, you know, it's, it's always a process of translating conscious to unconscious and unconscious to conscious, always trying to find that bridge back and forth. But I find it's much better to try and speak the language of the unconscious, which is sort of that dream language. It's very visual. It's very narrative. It's, it's a bit, uh, it's filled with non sequiturs. Um, so that, that's how we, I use dreams personally. No, it, that's a very uh, good answer. I mean, it's because when I look at some of the dreams I have, and I kind of see meaning behind some of them, and I'm kind of like mm-hmm. that. I've really kind of under, began to understood. It's like 
that's not just random thoughts. That's my brain kind of processing what's happened, trying to make sense of something. And it's a kind of like a symbolism of something that's happened up to that point. I'm like, oh, what did that mean? And it's, I really am sort of try, paying more attention to it because I think the more of your interviews I've listened to, the deeper of it I'm beginning to understand of like how nothing is ever wasted. It's like it's showing our emotions, it's showing our beliefs, it's it's the way mm. of our brain and our soul, if you want to call it, trying to communicate. How do we deal with the issues that are not just like the niggly, maybe they're like anxiety, depression, things like that, but like stuff that's really dark that people hate about themselves? Can hypnosis work on the stuff that you know people are truly ashamed of or you know, like what they think are beliefs about themselves, like they're always going to be a criminal, they're always going to be this, they're always going to be that. Can it tap into that area if it's something we don't truly believe about ourselves, but we've almost been shaped to be that way? Yeah, so uh, you're asking a couple different questions in there, but... <laughs> don't worry, I'll do that more and more. The... Yeah, so you know, when you think about shame or something that's deep and dark, you know, you're talking about someone's judgment of their own experience. Because if you feel anxious or depressed or you've been through trauma or maybe you've made some mistakes in your life, um, how you feel about those experiences and feelings becomes something unto itself. So that, that's what shame is. Shame is I did something bad, therefore I am bad. It's identifying with one experience or one emotion or one behavior, one action um, and emphasizing that over all others. It's pretty similar to trauma because with trauma, it, it, you have one or, or a handful of experiences and those are so emphasized, so intensified that you start to believe that every experience you're going to have will be more of those experiences. And that's why people are in this state of hypervigilance, kind of always looking over their shoulder, always feeling like something terrible is going to happen. And, you know, shame is very similar in that someone may have done something or a handful of things that they weren't proud of, um, and they're emphasizing those actions and those experiences, and they're, they're focusing on them, and they're, they're exaggerating them in many ways, and, um, and identifying with them. And so they sort of see themselves as a as sort of reflection of those handful of experiences rather than all the other experiences that they've had, you know. Um, but you know, how we feel about how we feel and how we feel about our own inner processes and experiences are sometimes more important than the actual experience itself. So if you feel anxious and then you feel angry about feeling anxious, or you feel ashamed about feeling anxious, or you feel like there's something wrong with you, or you're bad because of it, or you're afraid that it will never go away, or you're anxious about the anxiety, um, that will, all those things will make it much worse. But if you feel anxious and then to yourself kind of shrug and say, well, okay, I feel a little anxious right now, but that's all right. No big deal. Um, then your experience of it is going to be much, much lighter and much less un unpleasant. Um, and so in general, people have very deep unconscious troubles when they repress what they're experiencing or when they judge or shun parts of themselves. So I think the, the first thing to do is, is to get out of that habit of judging your own experience or of criticizing your own emotions um, because that will just bury them deeper and, and become a great deal of pain. Because what I find is that there's a kind of a core emotion. There's a, there's a deeper emotion 
and just to give you an example, let's say that somebody had, uh, let's say, let's use your example, right? Someone, someone feels like they're a criminal or they have shame. Um, so you have what they, what they did, right? The, the bad act that they made, the mm-hmm. act that they, they're not proud of. And there's how they were feeling when they, when they took that action. There's um, how they feel about that action, right? So let's just start at the beginning, right? Generally speaking, someone's going to commit a crime if, if they feel terrible. You know, you're not going to go and harm somebody else or um, do something unless you feel awful. And obviously, there's some exceptions. You know, there's like sociopaths and serial killers and stuff like that, people who enjoy doing bad things. Um, but for most people who do bad things, they're not in a good space when they do bad things. You know, they're, they're not feeling their best. And doing those bad things is kind of a means to an end. So we would want to look at the feeling that inspired that bad behavior in the first place. So maybe it's a feeling of hurt or sadness or loss or aloneness or anger. Um, And then we'd want to look at the response to that action of that crime, which may be shame or guilt or um, self-hatred. You know, you have all these sort of responses to that. Um, It's the same with, uh, with anxiety. So if someone has anxiety, anxiety is fundamentally the feeling of trying to get away from something. So the question becomes, well, what's underneath that anxiety? So underneath anxiety is often hurt or sadness. And then the anxiety comes in as a way of evading that hurt or sadness. And then then they try to get away from the anxiety. And then the way they get away from the anxiety is by feeling angry or by binge eating or by drinking or doing drugs or doing something else that's not good for them. Um, but then they feel shame at that behavior or, or guilt about doing it. And now they need to get away from that guilt somehow. And then they go and they do something else to get rid of that guilt. And then they feel other bad feelings. And it becomes a sort of piling up of reactions. But it all comes from trying to get away from what we're feeling. Whereas if that person just felt their sadness or just was with it without trying to fight it or run from it or judge it or outsmart it or anything like that, um, then all those other layers of reaction and running and anxiety and, and self, self-soothing through, through drugs and then the guilt about doing the drugs, you know, all that other stuff wouldn't happen if that core uh, emotion was worked with. So that, that's what I do with clients. So with someone like that, we want to find out like what is the emotion underneath the shame, underneath the guilt, and, and what is the emotion that drove that bad behavior that they now feel ashamed about and and, and what's that emotion and where does that come from? And, and once you work with that core level emotion, all of the layers on top of it that are just efforts to get away from it, all those other things come to solve because then there's nothing to get away from anymore. There's no need to run anymore because that core is handled. So I find most, most approaches to this are so focused on those upper layers. They're so focused on the anxiety and the binge eating and the shame and the guilt and then the self-image that comes through all those different reactions, but they don't really go deeper to that core that that is sort of the the, the instigator of all those other behaviors and emotions. Um, so we always want to go deeper to the core because when you get to the, the core or, or the root, as I sometimes call it, you're, you're you're working with the foundation of all those other behaviors and feelings. You know, you're working with the cause of all those other foundations and feelings, um, and so you get a lot more done a lot more quickly. Well, I mean, that's truly deep. When I look, when you actually stop and think about it, because I mean, I was because I recently interviewed a guy called David Hayes, and that's what he said is 
the lot of the prisoners, like he works in penal reform, and he mm-hmm. said that a lot of the people he worked with were kind of like told they were just going to be a number. They were always going to be a criminal. Um, I've well, got that's a, relative. That's a, that's a suggestion right there. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've got um, um, one of my relatives works in a housing, and she's always trying to get you know like people who've just been released from jail to kind of break off their bad habits to just get back to like try to build their life again and that's what they're saying it's like trying to get them to believe that they're capable they're worthy mm-hmm. and then they're like oh what's the point and then they go and then commit a crime because they don't feel like they're going to get a chance and david was saying just people doing like a cv for them to apply for a job when they were getting released made them feel like they were a human being again you know gave them that sense of worth and yeah I, th- I, like, I really like that idea of like tackling the core issue, like the deep down issue, rather than tackling the symptoms of it. And you know, yeah, that's super important. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I think. Well, I can't speak for over there, but I know over here. I think that that's largely a systematic issue um, in prisons. I mean, you know, we have people coming out of of we have people in prison. They're, they're prisoners, they come out of prison, but then they try to apply for a job and they can't get the job because they have a criminal record. And people, at least here, people who have felonies can't vote. So you can't vote, you can't get a job. Um, and so the, we're kind of pushing people into a corner where they have to just continue doing what they were doing before. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think it's very possible to change someone's belief and their view of themselves. Um, that's absolutely possible, but but it's a process, and it's something that needs to be done. Um, at least over here, our, our correctional uh, sort of process that doesn't do that at all. It just reinforces um, it reinforces those identities, and but but yeah, I mean the, the foundation of your beliefs are your experiences. <clears throat> so if you have someone who has been in and out of jail their entire lives, and they can't get a job or do anything in, in their life because they've been in and out of jail, then that's what they are. I mean, that's what they're going to see themselves as, but, but yeah, exactly. I mean, if they're given some training while they're in jail, maybe they learn how to be a, a blacksmith or a carpenter, or, you know, something they can metal work or whatever it is. Um, now they have a new identity. Now they have something else to hop into. And when they get out of jail, they can go and do that work. And now they're not a criminal. Now they're a carpenter or a, electrician you know so it becomes a different uh a different identity um if then they still return to crime then it is an unconscious thing then it is sort of a okay well what is what's the sort of inner emotional state that leads you to taking these actions Our, our emotions influence most of our behavior and the emotions that influence most of our behavior are very unconscious we're not even aware of them they're kind of buried deep under the surface so most people are just kind of ruled by these things. Um, uh, Carl Jung said, uh, until we make the unconscious conscious, we'll be ruled by it and we'll call it fate. And uh, and that's, I think, very true. No, I mean, it, it makes a lot of sense because I, ca- I can't remember exactly what I heard it, but I remember uh, 10 odd years ago, something like that, um, finding when somebody said, you're not your thoughts. You know, you're, you're just listening to them. You're seeing them. You, you don't have to react to them. Mm-hmm. Whereas I thought everything I thought or you know whatever came into my mind was who i was and what i wanted to do and how i wanted to act and when somebody said no you can just let that come and go it's just your brain kind of making suggestions i was like well you know it kind of blew me away that 
no one kind of explains that to you. You know, you're just kind of told, oh, you're a very angry person, you know, if you kick off at school. Nobody explains to you, like, where that's coming from or takes the time Mm. really to kind of deal with you. How do you then get somebody to kind of open up and understand that? And, like, you know, you've, you've talked about using metaphors and stories and things like that, but how do you even get somebody to to be open to change to kind of understand that you can change like deep uh, deep down level who they are yeah so you know un- unfortunately most people don't seek to make a change until the pain of not changing is greater than the pain of changing um, and so for most people that at least come to me it's oh i've had this problem for 40 years and now it's really affecting my life. Now I can't sleep and I have panic attacks and all this stuff. That's usually when people seek out a change. Um, it's when they just can't stand the pain of the problem anymore. But, but even then, people are reluctant to go inside themselves and change at a deeper level. I think there's a, I think that's also kind of cultural. We are taught that if you have a problem, there's a quick, easy, fast, and uh, you know, cheap solution for it, um, and that's that's why medication is so popular. Because oh, you're feeling bad, take this, you'll feel better. You know, that's that's very attractive. It's you don't have to do any work. You just have to go to your doctor, get a prescription, and, and start taking your pills, and you'll be normal. Um, so it's much harder to go inside yourself and face your deep emotions that you've not allowed yourself to feel for a very long time and to move through those things and heal them and it's 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 work and it can be difficult to do that and for a lot of people they're afraid to do that so for you know most people most people want to be free of pain but they don't want to change and i think that's a huge problem um, because now we have a lot of people who are always seeking the next way to be free of pain because it is sort of a moving target, right? Like you keep having to up the dose, keep having to find new ways to be free from pain. You're, you're constantly seeking um, because you're, you're running essentially. So I think for people who want to make a change, the first thing to do is to stop running and to stop trying to just avoid what you're feeling and to find a facilitator, someone who can help you really face what's there and and not just face it and and just kind of brush it away, but actually face it and move through it and heal it and work with it. Um, but unfortunately, most people wait until they're in a lot of pain to do that. Um, you know, I, I always say you can either do what's difficult, you can do the difficult thing, or you can live a life of difficulty. And so, for a lot of people, they choose not to do the difficult thing and to just live inside of a life that's difficult. Um, and that's just uh, unfortunately how people seem to behave i could listen to you talk about this all day like you know you've just got this kind of very soothing voice that kind of just seems to resonate deeper into you know into your mind while you're listening i mean where does this pain how does it portray itself because everybody talks about like the mind body connection you know the body feels what the mind's projecting how does how do you kind of work notice with a client do they feel it in a particular place do they feel mm-hmm. tense or are there certain emotions that you can kind of attribute to a certain issue yeah so you know your, your body is your mind and your mind is your body they're not they're not separate things um that's been my experience overall 
And yeah, it really depends on the issue. But but yeah, I mean, we, we work a lot in connection with both. So it's what are you feeling? Where are you feeling it? What images and thoughts are connected to those feelings? What behaviors flow from those feelings? Um, I do focus mostly on feelings with people because your feelings create your thoughts, not the other way around. Your thoughts do inform and, and feed into your feelings, but the origin of those thoughts is almost always feelings. You know, you feel sad or anxious or afraid or angry, and those feelings generate anxious and fearful thoughts. And those fearful thoughts create more anxious and fearful feelings, and which create more thoughts, and it kind of loops. But so my experience is that the, the feelings tend to be the origin. So I don't worry too much about the thoughts that people think because I know that if you feel angry, you're going to have angry thoughts. If you feel anxious, you're going to have anxious thoughts. If you feel depressed, you're going to have depressed thoughts. Um, and it's not that, you know, that's, that's where those thoughts are, are coming from, is from the, that emotional state. So if you change the emotional state, the thoughts will naturally change. It's the same way, like if you wake up in the morning and you feel great and you're energized and you're in a good mood, and let's say you spill your coffee and you go, ah, whatever, uh, that's a bummer, okay, whatever, I'll, I'll make another cup, right? no big deal. That's what your thoughts are. But if you wake up on the wrong side of the bed and you feel like crap and you're angry and you're frustrated already just waking up, um, and then you spill your coffee, it's, ah, oh, this always happens to me, I just, I'm just cursed, I must deserve this, I must have bad karma, of course this happens to me, you know. And that reinforces more of those feelings that you were already feeling. So for most people, I, I try to focus more on the emotions first and foremost, knowing that that's what influences behaviors, that's what influences thoughts. Um, and so we start there and, and uh, try to get as deep as possible, um, it, it sort of below all those reactionary emotions. And once we get to that core emotion, then we can do some really interesting work. And the core emotion is, yeah, it's, it's exactly, it's just in the body. You know, it's usually somewhere in the body. So it's, it's a sensation. It's a feeling. And is this where the work with like the intuition comes into mind? You know, do you tell people to kind of like sort of feel their, feel their emotions? And can we use like creative methods to get rid of some of this issues? Like, can we use like things like guitar, creative aspects like that to... Sure. Is it is a way to feed it off, like to siphon it off even? Yeah, I mean, all of that is, you know, if you looked at my TED Talk, there's the moment where I talk about reversing a spin, associating a spin to an emotion and then reversing the spin. Um, you know, all of that is intuition. It's all, it's all very ancient human efforts. But what you can do for sure is you can take an emotion and then say you play an instrument. What would that emotion sound like? Then you play something. Okay, now you know what that emotion sounds like. And now you can change the sound of that emotion by playing something different on the guitar. And you will start to feel different. Because what you're doing is you're transferring that feeling into a sound and then changing the feeling as a sound, which will then change the feeling. Um, you can do that for a lot of things. Images. So you can take a feeling and turn it into an image and then change the image, which will change the feeling. Or if you have racing thoughts, which are auditory, right? You hear yourself kind of talking to yourself. You could turn those words and thoughts into an image or into a feeling and then change those things. So, you know, our, our sensory experiences and our consciousness in general is incredibly fluid. Um, it's not systematic. It's not mechanistic. It's not like 
it's not like, you know, there's this constant effort to compare our consciousness to a computer, but we're really not like a computer. I mean, we are a computer in the mechanistic model, but we're, that's not really how our minds work. We're much more like a tree. You know, a tree isn't made up of separate, separate pieces like a machine. It's one whole entity and each, each element interacts fluidly with each other element. And it's always changing and, and, and growing and moving and swaying. And that's really what our consciousness is like. We're not a computer made up of separate parts that you can take apart and put back together. And, you know, that's a very Western understanding of the human mind and the human body. That's why you have doctors for every part of the body because it's, it's a mechanistic approach, like a car or a computer. Um, but that's just really not how we function. We function as a whole. And you, you can break a person up into their subsequent parts, but you, that's how you end up creating imbalance. That's why you end up having to you know, play whack-a-mole with someone's problems. So if, you, know, you give someone a pill for one problem and it causes another side effect that you have to give them another pill for, which causes another side effect and another problem over here. And it's, it's this game of trying to create balance in these separate parts, but that's, that's just not really how we function. So your consciousness is very fluid. So that means your, your feelings are flowing into your thoughts and to your behaviors, tying into memories and experiences. And the, the good news about that um, is that although it means that, change is is much less systematic and scientific and okay well we take this part out and then we repair that part and put it back and um, it's much less like that and it's much more intuitive but the good news is it also means that it's much easier to change because it's very fluid um, you don't have to cut things out and weld things together and force things um, as we do um, it, it's much more of a fluid process of change and and, and you know, I think I think art demonstrates that very well. It shows that our consciousness is super fluid and, and adjustable. So, I mean, you said earlier that you know somebody could maybe come to you holding something that's been there for say forty years, or it's been a lifelong like belief of theirs or habit of theirs. Do you think that you've mentioned in other interviews you you can make a deep level change in about six to eight weeks? Is that really? I mean. Would you say that's enough time? Can we see a gradual change faster? Um, you know, how do we know when we're starting getting down into that proper deep level change we needed? And was about six to eight weeks a good time frame to work with? Yeah. So I mean, it, it's it's different for everybody. It's hard to say. I I find that what makes the work take longer is someone's reluctance to go to that deeper place. Um, for instance, I'm working with a client right now who we had to spend a lot of time just reconnecting him to his body because he was on antidepressants for many years and was really made a lot of effort to not feel his feelings. And so when I say, well, what are you feeling? He says, I don't know, hmm. but I know I don't like it. And so we had to spend a lot of time reconnecting him to his body and his own emotions. So for a lot of people, there is a process of reconnecting them to their unconscious mind, to their own emotions and, and going deeper. And when we start to go deep, people can feel frightened of doing that and, and feel resistant to doing that because it's, it's, it can be scary. Um, so that's what makes the work take longer usually. But for some people, we go right in and we make changes and they see changes in their life. They feel different. They act different. And it's pretty quick. And 
um, and it all goes smoothly and it's easy. So for some people it's fast and easy. Other people it takes a little bit more time, but however much time it takes, you know, it's all, it's all part of the process. Um, but, but I, I, I find it's better not to, to rush. Um, especially when we're trying to make deeper long-term changes, you know, because I just found it amazing that like something that people have held on to their entire life can be resolved, you know, which is six to even if it's six to eight weeks, a couple of months, you know, to change something that you've held on as a lifelong habit that you a belief about yourself and realize that you don't need to be that person, you don't need to have that in your life, or you don't need to act in that certain way is that it's truly an amazing thing. Um, I mean, what's your opinion on the? the you know sort of the typical modality of oh you're depressed okay you've got anxiety we'll give you a tablet to to numb that how how do you see sort of um mental health um sort of affecting people do you see it kind of like as a sign that we've broken it because we're using something else like to kind of numb that like you're saying numb the pain numb the feelings that we have in our bodies this connection between our ourselves in our unconscious mind um could you repeat the question well i mean what's your opinion on the use of like pharmaceuticals to kind of to numb you know like um you know issues like mental health like depression and things like that rather than Um, kind of you know teaching people how to deal with the emotions i mean i've used um, antidepressants before and I got to a point where I couldn't really remember why I was on them. Like mm. I didn't. I felt like a bit of a zombie almost at times. Yeah, that's a pretty common experience. Yeah, so I mean, I, I work with a lot of clients who come to me and they're on medication, and you know, I don't, I don't tell people what to do. I don't tell people what to do in regards to their medication. That's a super, super personal choice. It's kind of between them and their doctor. Um, my personal opinion on it is, uh, it, it's it, it's just repressing things. I mean, that's that's really what I've noticed because I've had a lot of people come to me on medication, still experiencing some form of of, of sorrow or, or anxiety or whatever else they were taking the medication for, um, but but also at the same time, kind of numb to those feelings very strangely. Like they know they feel like, oh, I feel depressed. And they say, well, what does that feel like? And they say, I don't know. I don't really feel much because they're on all these medications. So, um, yeah, I mean, I just think, again, you know, if you want to really change something and heal, I don't think um, numbing yourself to the discomfort of the symptom is really a, a way of doing that. Again, that's a, that's a, that's a way of dealing with symptoms, um, which, you know, don't get me wrong. If someone's having a, severe panic attack and they're in a horrible place. They don't know what to do and they're really freaking out and they go to the emergency room and then in the ER, they give them a Xanax and they feel better in that moment. Great. That's fine. To me, that's the equivalent of like, you know, you broke your arm and you need to get to get set and put in a cast, right? Um, That's a fine short-term solution, I think. Um, But in terms of actually feeling better and living a life that you're happy with and healing, I don't think that's a long-term solution. And in my experience, it actually interferes with doing inner work because it puts up a brick wall between you and your emotions. So it becomes much harder to actually 
face the emotions and understand what they're there to tell you and where they come from and, and to work with them. Because if you're not even able to feel them because you're, you're chemically numbed, it becomes much harder to actually face what's there and, and heal it. Um, so I'm not a huge fan. I mean, I, especially not for long-term change. I, I just, like I, I talked to a woman not so long ago who said that she wanted to work on anxiety. And I asked her if she was on any medicine at the time. And she said that she was on the highest dose of Xanax that, that she could legally be prescribed and that she was on Xanax for something like 40 or 50 years. And she still had anxiety and she still wanted to work on her anxiety. And that's a pretty common story. And it just sort of tells you that you can only repress your emotions for so long and you can only keep upping the dose for so long. And at a certain point, you're going to have to face what's there and you can't just keep repressing it. And not to mention the, the, the physical effects that the medications have on people when you get on them and when you try to get off them. That was a big thing um, that I see a lot of as well is if a client starts working with me and we start doing the work and and they decide between them and their doctor, again, like I don't, I don't tell people what to do in regards to this. It's just, it's just not my expertise. Um, and they so say they do decide between them and their doctor to get off the medication. Um, the withdrawals are very serious and, and very intense. And I have to tell them like, hey, what you're experiencing is likely chemical withdrawals from being on this medication. Um, a lot of those medications are really heavy duty and the effect they have on your brain, especially if you take them over long periods of time, is, is pretty intense. So I'm, yeah, I'm not a huge fan. Um, I, you know, again, like if it helps somebody, great, but I hope that anyone who goes that route will also seek the, the root of those emotions and not just try and, you know, repress them um, because that's not gonna go very well. Sooner or later, it comes out somewhere else. You know, oh. sooner or later, you know, emotions can't stay buried forever. Sooner or later, it's going to show up somewhere. I was just nodding the whole way through that because I, re I remember that exact happening with me. It was like, you know, it's like the, I don't want to be sounding geeky here, but it's like that Harry Potter film, you know, it's like if they don't use the magic, it starts shooting out them and uncontrollable. And, you know, it's like you're saying they're just numbing the the effects of it but they're not actually dealing with it until it explodes and you can't control it and i felt like that when i was on antidepressants it was like you know i had i was numb 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 until i got to a point where i i couldn't i wasn't myself and then when i came off them it was like somebody had list, lifted a veil off my head and i was like oh so i knew that i wasn't dealing with the actual main issue i was dealing with the symptoms I was dealing with anxiety, the depression, but I wasn't dealing with what was yeah. causing it. And that's when I started getting into NLP and things like that. How do you find somebody should find a therapist, uh, sorry, like a hypnosist, um, hypnotist even, and start working with them? How can we be better patients? How can we come to you and actually be ready for a change? not just want to think about it, but actually come to you and say, okay, let's do this. You know, how can we find a suitable person? How do we know, like, you know, is that like an hour session? How do we come and be the best, like, yeah. client possible? Yeah, I would say, you know, uh, every every hypnotist practices very differently. And, and, you know, over the last 10 years of me being in practice, I've been lucky enough to develop new approaches to working with clients and new techniques and new philosophies. 
Um, so my approach is going to be very different than you know someone else's approach, and their approach is going to be different than mine. So I think it's just important to find someone that you like and that you trust. That's the most important thing. And ideally, I would say try and find someone who wants to help you make a change at the root, not just covering symptoms. Because unfortunately, a lot of hypnosis is is just symptom work. It's what are your symptoms? Let's get these get rid of these symptoms and move on. And um, there's nothing wrong with being out of pain, but again, my experience of symptom work, I have a lot of clients who come to me who have been to other hypnotists or who have been to other therapists, and maybe they felt some relief from their symptom for six months or eight months or a year, um, but then it started to come back. And maybe it showed up in another form, or maybe it came back with a vengeance and was even worse. And that just tells me that, you know, if you work to just get rid of a symptom that's only really going to last for so long versus changing the root cause of something. When you do that, when you change the root cause, you change as a person and that change is lasting and, and it pr- proliferates into many other areas of your life. So, excuse me, I would say um, find someone you like and trust and find someone who wants to help you get to the cause of something, not just covering up symptoms. And and also keep that in the back of your mind that, you know, yes, it's good to be to be at peace and to be free of pain. Um, but you don't want to be playing this game of covering up that pain because it's, it's a, it's a never ending game, you know, cause you cover up the pain and maybe you feel better for a few months and then you have to find a new way to cover it up. And then you have to find a new way to cover it up. And then that becomes your whole life is just spending all your time finding new ways of trying to repress these things. So, There's a great uh, saying uh, a friend of mine's dad said, the the lazy man works twice as hard. So you think it's the easier thing to do to just make the pain go away, but when you do that, you're actually going to give yourself twice as much work to do than if you just kind of go to the root and do it right. So I would just say change that perspective and very important to find someone that you trust and like and um, and who's going to kind of take that journey with you. Um, I mean, I, I work remotely with clients, so if anybody's interested, I'd be happy to point them in the right direction or chat with them further. They can reach me on my website, which is just my name, lucashandworker.com, and um, go to lucashandworker.com. You could you know, reach out to me, and I'm happy to chat with people. And if it's a good fit for us to work together, I'd be happy to. And if it's not, I can point them in the right direction of some other practitioners that I've trained or people that I, I, I like and, and our colleagues. So I think you're definitely going to get a massive um, app source and people coming to you because I think a lot of what nowadays is people are just told, yeah, go on antidepressants and deal with it. You know, that's, we don't talk about mental health. We don't, you know, it's not masculine to admit you've got a problem. You you know, all these stupid kind of almost like bylaws we've created that men don't ask for help. You know, like they've got, I think I read somewhere like, 70 odd percent of men say they, they haven't got a close friend that they could confide in you know they they've got nobody yeah. they can speak to it's terrifying i mean you have an amazing show where you you work with people and you know you you, you know you avoid the like you see people always be going to oh, stage shows you know it's like this the hen parties and all these sort of things but you have this amazing show where you actually go in and help people and just deal with their issues face to face Mm-hmm. How do you find that? Um, you know, what has that taught you about what people will come and see you about, like then the change of 
what people are willing to kind of seek help for. Mm-hmm. Have you, have you, how has that helped you, you know, in, in what year and how are the media is kind of portraying hypnosis and things like that? How have you seen the gradual change in how we are accept, more accepting of mental health and, you know, working with hypnosis? Um. I'm I'm a little confused. I'm not sure what you're, what you're asking. Oh no, I was about to say there's about fifteen. I was kind of thinking myself there was about four different questions there. But how what have you learned from doing your 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 show yourself? How have you learned about mm. working with people and yeah the the gradual changes you've seen and what people are coming to you with? Yeah, so I mean the the, the group events that I do are super different than the one on one work. I think what I what I've learned a lot from the group events is. Um, what, what you mentioned, kind of the importance of community, uh, the fact that, you know, unfortunately, I, I do believe that a lot of the things that people come to me for are a result of the way that we live today and just how our culture and society is. Um, we're very isolated. Most people don't have a community. Most people don't have close friends. Most people don't have that sense of purpose. Most people are uh, isolated from each other, from nature, from what it is to be a human being on earth. Um, and part of me feels like that's by design in, in the culture that we have. Um, but I think that causes a lot of problems. You know, I really do. I think if, if, if you don't feel that you have a community that you belong to and that you're contributing to, um, you're going to feel quite empty and, and much more anxious and less safe and, and all these things. And that leads to all kinds of behaviors like drug use and, um, things that just aren't good for us. So it's, um, you know, that that's a huge problem. But I think what the groups really showed me is the power of a group of people coming together with the intention of healing. And, you know, in my groups, my group sort of gatherings, I have people stand up and ask questions about their life that they'd like more clarity on. So people can ask anything from about a move or a job or a relationship or a past event or how to overcome habits or how to work through difficult emotions, you know, anything that they, they're, they're sort of wrestling with and they want more clarity on. And I've noticed that when people ask those questions standing in front of the group, the rest of the room gave them a lot of compassion and gave them a lot of support, even silently, just looking at them and listening to them. And you could tell that everyone listening was sort of feeling uh, the the sympathy with that person and and finding their own experiences that matched up with what that person was talking about like there was a lot of sharing of of emotions and and care and and you could tell that the one person speaking uh, had this deep impact on everyone listening and you could tell that everyone listening had a deep impact on that one person speaking and it just made me realize you know we really need communities and we need environments where people can share and listen and be heard and, and, um, and connect with people, uh, you know, in their, in their direct vicinity. That's super, super important. So I think that in and of itself is very healing, um, just to have that uh, opportunity. So that, that's what that showed me. And then also, um, I think it showed me that there's a lot of, you know, the, the way that human beings are affected is so much based on feeling and energy and even just being around other people and, and feeling what they're feeling and, and feeling how they feel. And like when I get in front of a group of people, I have to work very hard to make sure that my state of consciousness is, is a conducive one, a helpful one for healing. 
But I think people feel that and then they feel each other's energy and they feel mine and I feel theirs. And there's this sort of this, uh, this interplay that happens. So I think, you know, a lot of, a lot of our life is our relationships and how we make others feel and how others make us feel. And a lot of the time that just comes down to um, just sharing space with them. So and I think also the importance of community is shows up there as well. Um, that, that, that is what I would say is the big thing I learned in doing my groups. Um, but, but it affects a lot of people. You know, I think, I think human beings are, we, we, we're social creatures. We need to be in communities and if you think about it, all the work that we do in our lives, all of our, our entire career is in service of other people, right? It doesn't matter what you do. If you're a plumber, an electrician, or you build houses, you build websites, everything you're doing is in the service of other people. Um, and that's it. And that's why you're getting paid money because other people deem what you do is valuable enough to pay you. Um, and then when you're not working, you're you know, likely spending time with other people. Um, spending quality time or you're watching things that other people made that are telling human stories, you know, so our whole life is about giving and receiving and community. Um, but the way that we live right now is very disconnected from that. I think it has a really s- severe effect. Definitely. I've seen that far more and more, like a lot of people come to me and, you know, they say they feel lost and they've got nobody they can really connect with. They're looking for a tribe. They're looking for some sort of connection in the world. And, you know, it's to, to take a world, make it even smaller with the internet. Um, we actually feel farther away from each other. It's quite, it is quite scary. Can we use anything at home like NLP, CBT, EMDR therapy, these sorts of things? Or is it better to kind of work with somebody just to, address the issues and then we can do stuff on our own is is there any of that stuff helpful until we really start getting into the proper deep seated issues um yeah i mean you know i think i think self-directed work can be helpful but it's definitely never going to be as deep or as as effective as as working with a person um obviously a person who's experienced and well-trained and all that good stuff um you know, I think I think on your on your own, what's better is upkeep. And so, to me, upkeep is things like meditation, uh, journaling, exercise, like having a good diet, spending time with people you care about, reading, um, playing music. You know, just doing things that enrich you and, and making sure that you do those sort of things consistently. Um, and that's the same as taking care of your body. You know, if you take care of your body, you need to eat. Every day, right, you need to drink water, you need to eat well. It's the same thing for your mind. You need to do things for your mind to take care of it. Um, So that upkeep will go a long way. And then I think the other huge thing that people can benefit from, and I'm not sure if I've said it already in this conversation, but it's it's developing a, a better relationship with their own emotions, their own experience, and not judging their emotions or judging their experience so harshly because you know, you're going to feel emotions, good and bad, and and that's life. But how you feel about those emotions becomes very important, um, and that that's what kind of can lead you down a good path of healing or acceptance, but or a bad path of of pain and guilt and shame and all those other difficult emotions. I can't believe we've been talking for another. I feel like it's literally ten minutes, but until we can get another one in. How do you want people to take from this? What do you want people to take from this? Is there a 
a way to sum this up or is there a thing that you would want everybody listening to go and do to start working on themselves to get that connection do you think um yeah i mean i would say you know reach out to people uh if you want to have a connection don't wait to be reached out to you should be the one to reach out um if people want to hear more of this kind of stuff you know i'm i'm actually going to be i took your advice and i'm going to be building my youtube channel a bit more Awesome. And posting on there, talking about different ideas, consciousness, dreams, hypnosis. Um, so if people are interested, they can go to my website and, and sign up for my newsletter. And um, I post, I, I send out writings and newsletters uh, at least once a month talking about different things. And that's also where they can get updates on videos when I start posting those and exploring other ideas. Um, so that could be a good place to, to kind of continue the conversation. And how can people keep in touch with you? you know, how can we find you on like social media? Um, yeah. How do we sign up to work with you? That sort of thing. Yeah. So my name is Lucas Handworker, L-U-C-A-S-H-A-N-D-W-E-R-K-E-R. And uh, you could find me on Instagram. I'm on YouTube. Um, you know, I've stopped using Instagram as much, but you can find me on YouTube going forward. And uh, you can sign up for my newsletter at my website, which is just lucashandworker.com. And if people are interested in, you know, just talking, you know, for all new clients, I offer free consultations. So it's a chance for us to talk about your goals and for us to get to know each other and just see if it's a good fit. Um, so if people are interested, they can go to my website and uh, click the Let's Talk button and they can book a time to chat. And then we'll, we'll have a, a, you know, quick free talk and see if it's a good fit and go from there to potentially work together. Um, and so all that info is on my website, along with the newsletter and my YouTube link and all that good stuff. Um, and people can expect more coming out soon. Well, that's it for another week. And thank you for listening. It's now time to take what you've learned and use it to develop and enhance your life with the key points mentioned. Listen, try it, embrace it, use it, and crush it. Now's your time to hit that next level in your life. If you liked this episode, then please leave a comment on the show notes or a review of the show on your podcast platform. Everything helps evolve the show. Until next week, keep seeking the next level in your life.